Amen. So last week we finished the book of Exodus and the, the program is going to be, um, we're not going to start the book of Leviticus until after the new year. We're going to be here tonight, next Wednesday, and then the following Wednesday is actually, we're not going to be here. We'll be here Tuesday for the Christmas Eve service. So I'm just going to share a couple different things in the next couple of Wednesday nights and we'll jump into Leviticus in January. Uh, tonight I chose uh, chapter 142 of the book of Psalms. And really, it just kind of started last week in my own devotions. I felt like God just kind of brought this psalm back into my life. What I'd like us to do is all stand up right now, and I just want to read it, the whole thing. It's, a, it's not long, but let's just stand in honor and reverence of God's Word, at standing at attention, if you would. And I'm going to read it through, and then we'll, we'll kind of go back and unpack it a little bit. But let's look at chapter 142 of the book of Psalms. It says this, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is no one that takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Verse 5. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. And Father, we thank you for the word. Again, may it find a place in our souls. We're not here just to go through Bible studies. We're here because we want to know Jesus better. We want to follow you. We want to hear you. We want to encounter you. And I would pray for a prophetic and, and specific word for each one of us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. Psalm 142, I actually want to back up a little bit because um, I skipped something. I kind of did it on purpose, but um, this psalm that we're looking at was written by David, but I want to just back up and look at, even before verse 1, the inscription or the title. Some of the psalms, if you don't know this, some of the psalms have little titles, little inscriptions about, you know, what was taking place or the the context of, of that psalm. And this particular title really sets the stage, um, the backdrop for what this was, you know, talking about in David's life. So I just want to break it down. Look with me. It says this, a maskil, first of all, um, probably have a little footnote there that basically means uh, probably some kind of musical cue. Actually, nobody knows exactly what it means. Of David, so this was no doubt written by David. Now listen to this. When he was in the cave, a prayer. Interesting. So what this psalm is, from the very get-go, is a prayer. The psalms were songs, but this is like a prayer song written during the time or maybe more likely written after looking back on the time when David was in the cave. How many of you guys are familiar at least a little bit with the story of David in the Bible? Okay, then you know, a lot of you guys know, David spent some pretty significant cave time in his life. 
He was a caveman for sure. But I'll be here all week. Um, the question is, what cave and when? What is this referring to? What do you mean he spent cave time? What is, what is that talking about? Well, uh, there's at least two instances in the biblical records. There may have been more, but we know for sure that there was two instances where David was holing up literally in a cave uh, as, as a place of shelter, as a place of refuge. The first one is found in 1 Samuel chapter 22. And we're, we're told that David ran to the cave of Adullam. And the, 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 the circumstance for that was this was fresh, you know, just right at the beginning of David's kind of career. Saul was, was incredibly jealous of David, and it was official, it was clear, he had it out for David, and he, he was going to kill him. So David was running for his life. He goes to the cave of Adullam in the desert. The second time we, we learn about David being in a cave is in 1 Samuel 24, and that's in the cave or the strongholds of En Gedi. You guys remember that? 1 Samuel 24, the caves or the strongholds of En Gedi. En Gedi, by the way, is, if you were to look at a Bible map, it's south, and then all the way down to the Dead Sea. If you know anything about the, the region there, the Dead Sea, the lowest place on earth, it's hot, it's arid, it's dry, and then the Dead Sea is there, no life in it. That's why they call it the Dead Sea. 33% saline, nothing can live in that thing. But just to the west of the Dead Sea, there's kind of this interesting ravine where there's like mountains and stuff that come up and natural springs and there's an oasis it's called En Gedi by the way if you ever get a chance to go to Israel you visit En Gedi when I used to take trips with our church to Israel we would finagle the schedule to where we could spend hours and hours at En Gedi we would teach next to a waterfall and just let the people go and just hike up into the caves and spend time with Jesus and kind of put yourself in David's sandals. I remember the first time I was there, I was like, I'm going to find the cave that David was in. No one's, I'm sure no one's ever explored this area. I'm the first. You know, everybody and their brothers explored that every nook and cranny of that area. But anyway, just an amazing place. There's all these little ibex, these little mountain goats that run around. Just awesome little spot. Well, David was holed up there. Again, because of Saul, but this time it was because Saul had 3,000 soldiers hunting him like a wild animal, and he is finding himself literally running for his life, hiding up in this cave somewhere up in En Gedi. The point is, David was in a cave. Which one was it? Which incidents was it? We don't know. It doesn't say, and really, honestly, guys, listen, it doesn't really matter. I think maybe the Holy Spirit kind of engineered it that way to where it would just say, the cave, the cave. And here's what I want to point out, and I'm sure a lot of you are tracking with me or where I'm going to go with this already. But I believe that David, he was, yes, physically in a real cave, taking refuge, hiding, going for safety. But he was also in much more than a, a real physical cave. I believe he was in very much an emotional cave, a spiritual cave. Do you understand what I'm saying? Later in verse 7, he calls it a prison. He was in a dark, hard, lonely, hopeless seemingly situation or season in his life. And it was, in this instance, an actual cave. But more than that, it was a, a, a dark time in his soul, in his mind, in his emotions. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? It is very possible that some of you tonight came to church, and though you're here physically, 
you might be in somewhat of a cave. Do you understand what I'm saying? Metaphorically speaking, you're in a cave. You're in a very dark place, hard place. No way out. I don't know if you know anything about a cave. You go in, there's only one way out. You, it's just dark, and the further you go, it's dark in there, and it gets darker, and it gets tight. And maybe it's a financial cave that you're in. Maybe it's an emotional depression kind of cave that you're in. Maybe um, a spiritual cave where you're like, I, man, I just don't, I don't hear the Lord anymore, and I, I feel like he's silent, and I feel like the enemies of my soul is chasing me. Maybe you're grappling with your life of, unmet expectations. I'm this far along in my life and I thought this, this, and this would have been checked off by now and where am I going and what's happening? If you're not in a cave tonight, praise God, you probably have been in one and you're probably going to be in one. So listen, this message is for you. From time to time, every single one of us finds ourselves in a cave, so to speak. And that's where David's at. It's a hard place. He's down. He's, he's dark. He's questioning. He's, he's really having a hard time. And so what this is is his prayer. And, and, and so if we're following the, that pattern, like this is a great pattern for us. Like what do you do when you're in a cave? How do I respond? How did David respond? Let's learn from what David did. So here's how we're going to approach this. Oh, I should probably say a couple other things real quick. By the way, if you were reading from a, a King James Version, and I think in NASB, in, in New American Standard um, Bible, if you're reading from one of those, everything was probably in the past tense. Is anybody tracking with me on that? It would say instead of like, I'm reading from the ESV, and it says, with my voice I plead or I cry out to the Lord. Um, some of your versions will read, I cried or I pleaded. That's probably a better way of translating that because he's probably looking back on that in retrospect. He probably wrote this after kind of looking back at that time. Uh, nonetheless, it, in my mind, it makes more sense to uh, read it in the past tense. Another thing I want to say, not to bore you or, or, or build this up too much, but in this idea of being in a cave, I, I want to point something out that I think might be really helpful for a couple of people in here. You need to understand that David is in this cave in his life. No fault of his own. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's times in our lives where we have self-inflicted caves, i.e. Elijah, you know, when he ran and he was just, you know, just on this downward spiral. And, and we can kind of put ourselves in a cave. But guys, listen, there's no disobedience here. God's not angry with David. David hasn't done something wrong. He's not being disciplined necessarily. Do you understand what I'm saying? David did nothing wrong. In fact, you could argue the opposite. David could very well be in this cave because he is walking with the Lord. And here's why I point that out. Because sometimes, and maybe it's because of our American way of thinking, we have a bad habit of thinking this way. That if I walk with God and he tells me to do something, and I obey him, well, clearly it's going to go really smooth for me then because God's in it and I'm obeying God. Do you understand what I'm saying? We need to understand God's economy is different than ours. And sometimes when we're obeying God and walking with God, he will actually lead us into very difficult circumstances on purpose. What did David do? 
He's minding his own business. He's out with the sheep. One of his brothers, come here. I, some guy, what's going on? Somebody wants to talk to you. Samuel's there. Next thing you know, he's got oil dripping off his beard. Anointed to be the next king. He doesn't know what's going on. He's just going, okay, whatever. He finds himself. Next thing he knows, dad says, hey, go take some uh, cheese and bread out to your bros. Check on the, on the battle. Next thing you know, he's cutting Goliath's head off. He's not planning that. He's, you know, and then, then if that wasn't enough, he, women are singing songs about him. In the streets, he had nothing to do with that. And then he's being called to the palace, and he's an on-staff musician. And, and he's, he's in the army now, and, and Dave, he becomes best friends with Jonathan, and he's just following. Listen, he's following the call of God in his life, and he ends up in a cave for it. And I think we just need to kind of reconcile this in our head. Following Jesus does not mean he's always going to lead us in a very easy path. Does that make sense? He sends people into a storm sometimes. And I think this is a huge point to understand. Because if you don't, here's why I'm, I'm stressing this. If you don't get this, you'll, you'll be following Jesus. You'll be obeying. You're going to church. You're, you're doing what you're called to do. And your life seems to be in this hole and things are falling apart. What did I do wrong? It could be you did nothing wrong. It could be that you're going through all that because you're doing it right. Here's what we need to understand. Jesus is not so much concerned with our comfort as he is our character. Jesus is not so much concerned with our present comfort than he is our future character. And he will allow these things in our lives to make us into the women and the men that he wants us to be. And sometimes we need cave experiences to work things in and to work things out of our lives. Amen? All right, let's pick up the pace a little and by that I mean start. In verses 1 and 2, we're going to see David's cry. In verses 3 and 4, we'll see David's condition. In verse 5, we'll see David's conclusion. And in verses 6 and 7, we'll see David's confidence. I'm probably not going to repeat that, but hopefully you got it down. Number 1, or verses 1 and 2, let's look at David's cry. He says, with my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead, or I pleaded, or I cried for mercy to the Lord, I poured out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. As this is a prayer, I think we can learn some stuff about prayer. How many of you guys are always wanting to learn how to pray better? Anybody besides me? I feel like I, I don't know how to pray sometimes. So when I stumble upon a Bible prayer, I'm all about checking out what, what did they do. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so there's got to be something there. And there's some real um, pro tips on prayer in verses 1 and 2. First thing I want to point out to you is he says, I cried out, I pleaded with my voice, with my voice to the Lord. Now, there's a lot of little points. Notice, first of all, and I'll come back to it later, his prayer is to the Lord. And his prayer was what? For mercy, compassion. God, see my situation and step in. He's not saying, give me what I deserve. He's saying, have mercy on me, have compassion on me. Exercise your pity and steadfast love towards me. But this is what I want to just point out to you in verse 1, is twice he says that phrase, with my what? With my voice. With my voice. I cried out. I like to look up words. The word cry, or to cry out, means a call for help, to wail, to make a public sound of physical pain and emotional anguish. How's that? Physical, uh, uh, was it, how's it go again? Public sound of physical pain and emotional anguish. 
I have no doubt in my mind that God hears my thought prayers. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like you're, you're driving down the road and you're like thinking, but you're actually praying like, Lord, bless my wife today, bless this today. Like how many of you guys know God hears thought prayers? How many of you guys know that God hears prayers whether you're standing, sitting, kneeling, laying on your face? God hears prayers. All, he, he's God. He gets it. But there is something I believe to be said for crying out to God. I believe there is a time and a place where we need to engage beyond just thinking a prayer and actually emote and actually verbalize what we're thinking and cry out to God for help. I love how Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it. He says, um, the best style of prayer is that which cannot be called anything else but a cry. Just cry. Help me, God. That's a great prayer. Doesn't have to be long, but it was out loud and it was full of listen. Crying out to the Lord connotates passion, urgency, and total dependence. I need you. There's no plan B here, God. If you don't come through, this is it. Anybody ever been in a situation like that? And sometimes it takes us getting pushed into a cave before we'll cry out to God. And I think that we are in no danger of overly crying out to God in this church. <laughs> I think we need to learn to, again, if you're not more holy, you're not more like God doesn't hear you, but, oh, and I hear you better if we emote or we say it with our voice, but it's more for our benefit that we would say, you know what, I need to engage my mind, my emotions, my voice, and just really press in to a time of prayer and get on my face and, and fall down and cry out with passion, emotion, and dependence and desperation to God. My kids are failing, you might say. They're, they're wandering from God. When's the last time you cried out to God for your kids? Not thought prayer. God heard those thought prayers. But when's the last time you cried out for your spouse, for your kids, for the nation? We do a lot of complaining about we're the state of our union. We do a lot of complaining about church this and that. But how often do we cry out to God? He cried out. I love that. Passionate, pleading. I, I couldn't help but think of this, you know, one of the definitions for crying out is, in the Hebrew, was to cry for help. Do you guys know that children have no problem crying out for help? You guys ever notice that? You know, your three-year-old, if you have a three-year-old, if you had a three-year-old, if you were a three-year-old, you climbed up too high on the monkey bars, help! Not embarrassed, don't care who hears you, just, I can't get down. And you run over there, you're not like, I can't believe you cried out for help. Yeah, that is embarrassing. We don't do that. Now, if you're 18 and you cried out, you know, you're at the top of the monkey bars, like, help, I'll be like, get yourself down. You got yourself up there. It's a whole different story, right? Because as it relates to raising kids and becoming adults, independence is a sign of maturity, but it is not that way in spiritual maturity. Do you understand? A sign of spiritual immaturity is self-dependence. A sign, let me say that again, a sign of spiritual Immaturity is self-dependence and self-reliance. A sign of spiritual maturity is God-reliance and God-dependence. And what happens is we have gotten older in our faith and we think we're, oh, I can handle it. I can. No, we need to become like children, Jesus said, and just be quick to cry out for help when we need help. Amen? To, I think, yeah, I think a lot of things, but I'm just going to shut up now and move on. Verse 2, here's another pro tip on prayer. 
He says, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. The word to pour out literally means to spill or to drain. And the idea of complaints there is your musings and your thoughts. David says, I drained my thoughts. I poured out my thoughts, my musings, the things that were bothering me. I told them to God. Did you know that God likes it when you tell him what's bothering you? How many of you guys have kids? Raise your hand. How many of you guys have ever said when they were younger, what's bothering you? Or even when they're older, you can tell when something's bugging them. What's bothering you? And you just tell me, tell me. Just, I just, I'm here, I want to hear it. It's not like, hurry up and tell me and I got other things to do. What's bugging you? Let's get this dealt with. No, I mean a good, you might do that, but a, a good parent <laughs> is more like, Hey, I'm here for you. I love you. I'm concerned about what's concerning you. And, and here's the thing. We know God knows. God knows what's going on in your life. But what does Peter say in 1 Peter 5, 7? Cast your cares upon the Lord. Why? He cares for you. What's bothering you tonight? What's your concern tonight? Why not just go and tell the Lord? Well, he already knows he's God. I know he knows, and you know he knows he knows. But just go talk to him. You know, I have a great example of this. I'm not going to tell you the details, but there was something two days ago. No, I take that back yesterday. That was really bothering me. And, and I, I took a little, short little walk with the Lord. I'm like, Lord, this is exactly what's bothering me. I feel this way, and I see this, and I'm not sure how this plays out here. And then I said amen, and I went my way. And then I, I was like looking through my podcast list, and I'm like, oh, all my podcasts are all up to date. I need a new teaching. And I went to this teacher that I generally don't listen to, and I scrolled through, and I found, oh, that's an interesting title. Out of tons of titles, I clicked that one. I downloaded it. I listened to it. And that pastor spoke exactly, exactly, exactly to my situation and exactly what, did I, needed, what I needed to hear in that moment. Amen? doesn't always happen that quickly, but to me, it was like, thank you, Lord. I, I was able to share what was on my mind, and he goes, well, cool. I got a little something I want to give you. How's this? The point is, David poured out his heart. Pour out your heart to God. Now look at verse 3, and I'll go a little quicker now. Look at his condition, David's condition. We've already talked about the fact that he's in a cave. He's, he's in a dark place. He says, when my spirit faints, or again, we can go to the past tense, when my spirit fainted or was overwhelmed is probably a better word within me you know my way or you knew in the path where i walk they've hidden a trap for me look to the right now just kind of take this bit by bit he says when i was overwhelmed when my spirit was overwhelmed within me you knew you knew you ever been overwhelmed Whenever I think of overwhelm, I always think of whitewash on a big day. Like, you ever just get pounded by whitewash and you're like a rag doll? Just, and like, that's overwhelming. Like, there's nothing I can do right now. I am being destroyed. And sometimes life is like this big wall of whitewash where it's like, whether it's emotional or financial or whatever it is, and, you're, and you just find yourself, I I can't do anything right now. I, I don't know how to react right now. You ever been in a place like that where you're overwhelmed? And you literally don't know how to process the situation. You don't know how to think straight about it. Before I moved out here, when my wife and I were praying about leaving the church that we'd pastored, I'd pastored for 18 years and sunk my heart, soul, and blood, and sweat, and tears into, and I felt like God was moving us on. I had what I would consider the closest thing to a nervous breakdown. 
I was at a men's retreat, and I was supposed to teach, and I, and I said, God, I can't, I, I, all I could do is cry. I couldn't even think straight. I was overwhelmed. I didn't know what to do. I, I felt like if I have to make one more decision, I'm going to lose it. God met me in that place. He calmed my heart. He saw where I was at. He worked things out. Maybe you're in a place tonight where you just, I, I don't, I think I'm, I'm going to lose it. I don't, God sees right where you're at. He loves you. But David said, when I was overwhelmed, you saw, you knew. Not only that, he says, look to the right. Oh, oh by the way, he says, they've hidden a, you know, those who, um, let me read it, I'm sorry. In the path where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. He had these enemies that were trying to trap him. You know, we could go on and on about this. We have an enemy of the soul. I had two people tell me today, two separate occasions. They were like, I feel like Satan, the enemy of my soul, is just hounding me today. You ever feel that way? We're like, it's like from the moment you get up, you're like, oh, it's going to be one of those kind of days. Where you just feel like the enemy is working overtime to just discourage you. And he, he had a real enemy, a physical enemy. We have a spiritual enemy. He said, look to the right and see there's no one to take notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Now, I want to pause here in verse 4. He says, what did he say again? No one takes notice of me. No one cares for my soul. Nobody even cares about me. No one sees me. There's no one here for me. Now, I got I to gotta just call David on this one a little bit because in both instances that we have, 1 Samuel 22, 1 Samuel 24, he actually had lots of people with him. In 1 Samuel 22, his family came with him. And then that whole band of guys that eventually became his, his mighty men of valor, they were showing up. That's the occasion where they were showing up. And in Getty, he had his crew with him. There was actually people that loved him and cared about him and that were actually there for him. But he was saying, but nobody notices me. Nobody take care. Nobody cares. That may or may not have been the case. It may not have been true, but for David, it felt true. It felt true. You ever been like that? You actually have people in your life that love you. You actually have people that, that care about you, but you can feel like nobody gets me. Nobody sees what I'm going through. Nobody understands. That can be a very real feeling. I got to just say, I don't have to. I'm going to choose to say something here that you get a lot of as a pastor. You know, I went to your church and nobody even said hi to me. I go to the church and, you know, I'm there every week. You know, I come in right after the third song of worship and leave during the altar call. No one even said hi to me. You know, I, I, you know everybody's always doing stuff. They're inviting everybody else to go do stuff. And I never get invited to do anything. I have a person I'm thinking of right now, not at this church, so relax. That, that, there was like a conspiracy against this person. They, they, were, they thought everyone in the church was always doing something, and it was a conspiracy that they never got. And my point is, is that when you're in a dark place and when you're in a cave, if you're not careful, you can make that cave deeper <laughs> than it needs to be. You can kind of get on that downward spiral like, nobody cares. No, Elijah did that, right? I'm the only one, God. Elijah, I've got 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to me. You know, but we can feel that way. Listen, whether it was true, whether it felt true, any of that, that's where he's at. We'll just, okay, it is what it is. We're not going to beat him up about it. He gets to a place where he feels like nobody is there for him. Nobody can save him. Nobody can help him. And here's what I want to say. That actually can be a 
very good place to be. And here's why I say that. And if you missed everything else I said, don't miss verse 5 because this is it. He gets done saying, my enemy's after me, my soul's overwhelmed, nobody cares for me. Verse 5, I cried out to the Lord. I cried out to you, excuse me, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. You guys catching the flow of this? I'm overwhelmed. Enemies after me. Nobody cares for me. Everybody hates me. Nobody even thinks about me. So what does he do? He does the right thing. All of a sudden he says, so I cried out to you, O Lord. And what does he say? You are my refuge. You are my portion. And guys, this lesson right here is worth the price of admission. This is the one right here. David came to a place where there was no other refuge for him to go and no other portion for him but the Lord alone. Amen? Refuge and portion. Those two words, refuge and portion. Refuge and portion. Refuge and portion. Refuge. What is a refuge? A refuge, that, that word comes up all the time in the Psalms, so think about it. What is a refuge? A refuge is a place where you run to for safety, for shelter, for help, for relief, for salvation, right? Well, you know, big or small, it's raining, you run to a shelter. That's a refuge. The word refuge in the Hebrew can actually mean cave. David's in a cave. What's he saying? I'm in this cave. I'm in this refuge. But Lord, you're my real refuge, not this cave. Amen? You guys see where I'm going with this? We have got to get to a point where we stop running to other refuges and realize there's only one real refuge for our soul, and it's Jesus. We have a tendency when we get into trouble, when something hard happens in our life, we will run to a refuge. We will run to a shelter. We will run somewhere to get relief. We'll run to something. But here's, what, here's the mistake we generally make as Christians. We don't run to the Lord or look to Him first and foremost to be our refuge. We exhaust every other refuge first and then end up at the Lord. Are you guys with me on that? You're going through a thing, what's the first thing you do? You pick up your phone. If you have a, the phone app on your phone, that was a joke. You call somebody. You text somebody. There's nothing wrong with having friends. There's nothing wrong with counselors. There's nothing wrong with pastors. But guys, we are far too quick to look to other people to solve our problems and not just run to God and God first. Amen? Anybody, you ever looked at people and just found yourself disappointed, 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 and then frustrated? I, I remember a time, and I don't mind saying this, you know, my oldest son, Josh, many of you guys know, and he struggled for a while in his walk with the Lord, and I was scrambling, and I was going to his youth pastor, and I was going to the, you got to help him, you got to do this, and, and the Lord was just like, stop it, you come to me, and you pray to me. If it's not a person, a lot of times it, it's, we'll go somewhere to relieve the pressure that we're in this cave, we're in this problem, but we got to get out of it, so we'll go self-medicate. We'll take drugs, we'll drink alcohol, we'll do this. You know what some people do? It's not marijuana, it's not alcohol, it's shopping. That's your self-medication. Oh, I just feel horrible, I don't know what's going on, I'm just going to go buy something, maybe that'll make me feel better. <laughs> 
Anybody ever done that? Am I the only one that's ever done that? I know that I feel bad, but a new pair of pants would probably really make me feel good right now. I'm not a girl. I just like, I, just, I heard that, Mitch. Hear everything up here. We run to people. We run to places. We run to things. We look to, listen, we look to other things, other people to be our strength, our relief, our refuge, our salvation. And David got to a place where he said, there is no other refuge. It's you, O oh Lord. I'm sitting in a refuge, but this really isn't a refuge. You are the only one that can save me. You are the only one that can help me. You're the only one that can turn this around. You're the only one that can meet my needs. It's got to be him alone. And it is a red letter day in the life of a Christian when you finally, when I finally get that, that no other person, not your parents, not your pastor, not your friends, no other thing, no other house, no other car, none of that stuff, what you need is Jesus to be your refuge, and you run to him, and you say, you alone, you alone are my refuge. Amen? Then he says, and you're my portion. I love that. I believe the Hebrew reader would have picked up on the nuance of what David was saying quicker than we do. Because when he says you're my portion, the word portion there literally means territory or what's the other word? It's actually a great word. I don't want to miss it here. Allotment. Territory or allotment. What's the big deal with that? That would throw their mind back to the 12 tribes of Israel. Within the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the tribes was Levi. The Levites were those who were tasked with the, the, the responsibility of taking care of the tabernacle and then later the temple. They carried the stuff when it moved. They, they, you know, they were serving in and out. If you came from the, the, the line of Aaron, you were actually a priest. But that whole tribe, Levi, was set apart to be the overseers and the keepers of the tabernacle and later the temple. Because of that, God said, when they go into the land, when you go from um, Egypt into the land of Canaan, um, they were to inherit that land. And they diced up the territory, and, and every tribe got real estate. Joseph, you know, or uh, yeah, Judah got real estate, and Dan got real estate, and all everybody got real estate. But the Levites didn't. I'll give you a verse so you can look it up for time's sake. I'm not going to go to it. It's Deuteronomy 10, 7 through 9. He basically says, you will minister unto me, and I will be your inheritance, or listen, your portion. I'm not going to give you land. He did give them cities to dwell in, but he didn't give them land. They didn't inherit land or get an allotment like everybody else. God said, but instead, you are going to be, or excuse me, I am going to be your portion, Levi. Who do you think got the better deal? I'll take the real estate. The Levites were set apart. And God said, I know, I know it's kind of a bummer that you don't get real estate, but listen, I'm your portion. I'm your allotment. Everything you will ever need is found in me. And guys, same principle as the first point of refuge. It's a red-letter day when a Christian understands that Jesus is their portion. That you, listen, that you don't need anything or anyone else than Jesus. This lesson, I think 90% of the church doesn't get. I don't get it all the time. I get it once in a while. It was Corey Ten Boom who said, you never know that Jesus all you need, is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And she knew what she was talking about. When everything is stripped away and all you are left with is Christ, you realize he's all I need. Right now where you're sitting, you might be thinking, no, what I need is a new car. 
or what I need is a different spouse, or I need a spouse, or I need money, or I need a ministry, or I need this, or I need that. Really, what you need is just more Jesus. That sounds so pastory and so churchy. Even as I hear myself say it, I'm like, yeah, it doesn't even sound like reality. But the times in my life where I've grabbed a hold of that, the times in my life where I've been discontent in an area or thinking if I just could achieve this or do that or obtain this or that, then I will be satisfied. But I, I say, no, I'm going to grab onto Jesus and let him be my everything from the moment I wake up till the moment I go to bed and realize he's in control. He's the fulfillment of my life. And if I can't be content in my, situa- my situation with Jesus now, what makes me think I'm going to be content in my situation with Jesus later? You know what I'm saying? If you can't be content single and serving Jesus single and on fire for Jesus single, what makes you think that you're going to be content when you're married? You've got to find your everything in Jesus right now. He's got to be your everything. For some of us, it's like, oh, if I could just be on the mission field, if I could just be a pastor, if I could just be a worship leader, if I could just be this, then I'll really, those things are great. And if God calls you to that, that's awesome. But the reality is, what you really need is just more Jesus. That's where your fulfillment is found. So it, it, to, to me, verse 5, I mean, we could stop now. I'm going to just blast through the rest. But in verse 5, this was David's conclusion. He's in a cave. He's got a real enemy after him. He's in a dark place. He feels forsaken, lost, depressed, bummed. No one's there to help him. And he comes to this conclusion. But then I cried out to God and I said, God, you alone, you're my refuge and you're my portion. Boom. Bingo. Got it. That was it. And then he says in verse 6, Attend to my cry. I'm brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors. They're too strong for me. Bring me out of this prison. Bring me out of prison, rather, that I might give thanks to your name. In verses 7, 6 and 7, but we'll just mostly in 7, it's David's confidence. He says, bring me out of this prison that I might give thanks to your name. Now, verse 7 is written in the future tense in both whatever text you're looking at. He says, the righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully. With me, He wasn't like putting on some positive name it and claim it attitude or just speaking it into existence or whatever, some metaphysical thing. This was just a faith. You know what? He says, you know what? There's a calling on my life. You called me to be king. You spoke promises into my life. But I'm in a cave right now. I don't really know this, how this is going to work out, but this is what I know. I'm, you're going to get me out of this prison, and I'm going to praise your name. And I'm going to be surrounded by the righteous. And the idea there is he'd be back in Jerusalem in the courts of the temple where the righteous people that love the Lord would be. And he would be there again someday. And he says, and you will deal bountifully with me. Not because David was so awesome. He was just like, because who you are, I just believe. You're, this cave I'm in, this isn't forever. Ooh, somebody I think needs to hear that right now. <laughs> the cave you're in is not forever. It's a seasonal cave. And God is working things out, and he's going to be true to his promises, and he's going to keep his word, and he's going to deal bountifully with you. I don't know how long you're going to be in that cave, but I'll tell you what, the sooner you learn the lesson of verse 5, and and I'm not saying that the second you learn the, the, the lesson of verse 5, you'll get ripped out of the cave. What I am saying is you'll endure the cave way, way better. Amen? 
One last illustration on that. The guys that were in prison, Acts chapter 12, Paul, right? They were there, Acts chapter 12. And it says at midnight they were praising God. And sometimes we hear preachers or we'll say, see, if you praise God, he'll get you out of that prison. They had no idea there was going to be an earthquake to open the doors. They didn't read the book of Acts beforehand and say, here's what you do. They were living the book of Acts. It hadn't happened yet. It, the idea is at when it struck midnight, they had already been praising God, and then the prison doors opened. Does that make sense? The point is they were praising God at midnight in the darkest hour in their cave, if you would. They had found a, the ability to just praise Him in the midst of it, and yes, they were released out of it. But they weren't doing it to get out of it. They were just doing it because Jesus was with them in the cave, and He's with you and yours. Praise Him. Thank Him come to the conclusion that he is your refuge, he is your portion. He will deal bountifully with you. He's going to fulfill his promises and his, his purposes for your life. The cave is not forever. Trust him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together, guys, and let's pray. Maybe in the privacy of your own heart right now, I'm just going to, in a moment, I'm just going to ask us to close our eyes. You can't make you do that, but if the idea is, is just to kind of create a little zone for yourself, right? Maybe in the privacy of your own heart, maybe you're here tonight and you say, you know, um, something that was said was for me. I'm in a cave or some other point maybe hits your heart. I always think it's a great idea to respond immediately when God is speaking to you, not just say, I should pray about that when I get home because something happens from here to your car that, erases everything that God was trying to do. So let's close our eyes right now. And if you just say, you know what? God spoke to my heart. I want you just to lift your hands up to heaven, up to him. This isn't for me or for anyone else, just between you and God. And I want you right now, just in a whisper under your breath, this isn't the place to cry out, but in a whisper under your breath, I want you just to tell the Lord, kind of drain it, spill it, talk to him for a second. Maybe someone tonight just needs to say, Lord, I need to stop looking to everybody else to be my help and my refuge and my salvation, and I need to, to start looking to you and you alone. Maybe someone tonight needs to say, I keep thinking once I get this or that, then I'll have my portion. Tonight I'm going to start looking to Jesus to be my portion. He's more than enough. Father, I want to pray right now for anybody who's in a cave emotionally, spiritually, circumstantially, financially, whatever cave is there, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would pull them out of it. But I also pray you'd teach them every lesson you are trying to teach them in the midst of it. Lord, thank you that even when we're walking with you, you allow us to go into these times, but you never leave us there alone. You're always with us. Be our refuge. Be our portion. Be our everything. We love you. We praise you. And we thank you that you will, and you have, and you will again, deal bountifully with our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.